We just to see everyone. That song was a good one. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Jacob, and everyone. Hope you guys have had a good morning so far and a good weekend. If you're visiting, I'm really glad that you're here. We'd love to get to know you, get to know you some more afterwards. So, so stick around and love to talk to you. But this is a day where many of us are naturally just thinking about Jesus' resurrection. And it, it just comes about as we go about our day-to-day lives. And I'm thankful that I have the privilege to talk to you this morning. And who better to talk about than Jesus? Jesus, our Savior. We're going to talk about that resurrection. Nate, last week, talked about the Passover and what that means for us. And Jesus as that Passover, that Passover lamb. A lot of his lesson had themes of redemption, which I hope we can capitalize on. But when we talk about the resurrection, there's a lot of different themes that come up. Not just redemption, but, but hope and new opportunities and love. You know, the resurrection is a great, beautiful display of love. Because if we don't have love, as 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, we have nothing. Everything we do, everything we have, it's in vain, it's meaningless. Love gives what we do and what we have meaning. And so the resurrection wouldn't be important if it wasn't out of love. Because without love, our life means nothing. And without the resurrection, our faith means nothing. And Paul attested this in 1 Corinthians 15. He saw the resurrected Jesus, and he says in verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is futile, and your faith is empty. And so if the tomb is full, if Jesus is there, then our faith is empty. It's vain. But if the tomb is is empty, well, then our faith is full. And we know this because Jesus arose. Before we can talk about the resurrection, though, we have to realize that the resurrection implies someone died. Someone rose from the dead. We have to talk about this lamb that was sacrificed in the most brutal way possible. And let's recognize that for a second, because in a world full of suffering and pain, Jesus suffered one of those brutal deaths. And while Jesus' death was sad, yes, We have to realize that in our own pain and in our own suffering, it should comfort us to know that Jesus suffered more than we did because he loved us. Not because God the Father was a dictating father commanding him to do that, but because he chose out of his free will to show us sacrificial love. In John 19, for example, some of his final words that are recorded when he breathed his last in verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. After suffering this brutal crucifixion, I mean, we're talking about being whipped and beaten, carrying that cross, and then being nailed to that cross. And that's just the physical pain. Add on top of that, the emotional pain and suffering, the anxiety, the stress, and he breathes these last words here, it is finished. Another gospel account in Luke 23, 34, tells us his final words were also, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And so you put those together and it creates this beautiful story of, Father, forgive them. It is finished. What we'll find is that the resurrection story is also a story of forgiveness. Which I hope we can talk about this morning. Because his final words are there. 
it is finished is really important because it means two different things to Jesus and the disciples. I want you to put yourself in their shoes here as they're looking and they're witnessing Jesus say these things and as he dies. Put yourself in the shoes of the women there, John, the other disciples that are looking at this from afar. And they hear, it is finished. And to them, it is. It's over. It's finished. The disciples are seeing this and hearing this. And as God-fearing, believing, practicing Jews, that's all they know. In their mind, God allowed Jesus to die. I suppose he then is a heretic. He was false, as everyone claimed. Why would God allow that to happen? But in Jesus' mind, when he says it is finished, it's complete, it's just begun. And so I point this out because the resurrection was not on the minds of the disciples when it happened. We know this because John 20 verse 9 tells us that the disciples did not understand the scriptures, that Jesus must rise from the dead. And so even though the resurrection may seem like a preposterous claim, I mean, no one has ever heard of anyone rising from the dead, at least without God's help, let alone God raising himself from the dead. And yet, if we don't believe in God, that is crazy talk. To think that someone would rise from the dead, that's implausible. However, if we do believe in God, even if we are agnostic and we believe something or someone may have started everything that we experience in this life, to God, the creator of the universe, who's all-knowing and all-powerful, the resurrection is nothing to his abilities. It's completely plausible. And so you look at some of the evidences we have for the resurrection. These are historical evidences that can be explained. And this is what biblical and secular scholars can agree on that happened. We see this in the scriptures as well, that Jesus died a Roman crucifixion. He was buried in a tomb of one of the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin. That tomb was discovered empty by his female followers. And various individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus after his death, him alive. We hear that in 1 Corinthians 15 when it talks about the 500. And this one here really hit home for me. The earliest disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead despite having every predisposition to the contrary. That last one really gets me. It's what we'll talk about a lot this morning. Because not only do we see a drastic change in the lives of those early disciples. But it's hard to say that we don't see a change. And the millions, the millions of people who have lived after them, men and women of faith whose shoulders that we stand on, active members of Christ's body who did amazing things, things we know or things we don't know, but one thing we know for sure is that Jesus' resurrection assured them of that change in their life. And so we turn over to Luke chapter 24, and we read about this resurrection. Let's look at this change in the disciples, if you will. Luke 24, as you turn over there, we have to realize Jesus changed us. And if we examine our own life and we think, well, I don't see much change than when I started following Jesus, well, then there is a problem. And it reminds me of Colossians 3, 5 through 9, when Paul says, just as the Romans put Jesus to death, We are to put our old selves to death, our old sinful selves. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put off the old self and its practices. Why do we do that? So we can rise up. We can rise up new 
as Jesus did here. Let's look at Luke 24, chapter, uh, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them that told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them, look at that, an idle tale. And they did not believe them. Notice that the women here in this passage early on are just going about their day. Just another day getting the spices and the ones that they prepared. Now, of course, they're grieved and they're sorrowful for what has happened and what they've seen happen to Jesus and what they experienced, of course. But they're moving on. They have duties and they have responsibilities. And when they go to the tomb, they're expecting to see the dead body of Jesus. And when they see that empty tomb, what are they what are they? Verse 4. They are perplexed. They're perplexed. And that word perplexed, I like it. Because in the Greek, it means they're confused and they're anxious and they're trying to figure things out. But in the Greek, that word literally means to be left wanting. They wanted the dead body of Jesus. And that's not what they needed. That's not the plan. And I think all of us, at some point in our life, are left wanting Wanting change, wanting to be better, wanting to be loved. I don't know about you, but just becoming a Christian and a husband and a father, those things leave me wanting to be better. And it's easy to live our, our lives day by day and just to go about the mundane activities and try to find meaning in those things because we have duties and we have responsibilities and try to gain as much as we can from this physical world. And it's not about that. I'll tell you a story here. It was a uh, so my oldest Emmy, she's four, and she had her Easter egg hunt at school, and they had this big room with Easter eggs all over the ground, and you have these bunch of four-year-olds all lined up, ready to get those Easter eggs, and you hear those words right on your mark, get set, go, and they shoot off those eggs and. The real smart kids, they'll put their basket down and they'll use two hands to get as many eggs in there as possible. And I look over at Emmy, I'm trying to figure out, what is she doing? Just kind of meandering around and I'm like, no, you got you to pick up those eggs. I'm trying to tell her to do that. I feel like a failure because I should have told her what the point of this is. And I, I thought I failed because we meet up afterwards and, and I'm just, I, I feel bad for her. I'm like, I'm sorry. And she comes up to me. With the biggest smile, she only has four eggs in her basket. She's like, Dad, I got all the pink eggs. I got all the pink ones. <laughs> you see, she was playing by different rules. And that's what the resurrection does, is it changes the game. It changes the rules. 
no longer are we living a life without God where it's all about how many eggs can I get in my basket? How many things can I do to serve me and myself? Now it's about, no, God is real and I serve him and I live to glorify him. And what can I do with the things that he has given me? In our ordinary lives, it's easy to be as the angels said in verse 5. Look at that a little closer. Seeking the living among the dead. We could be walking around looking for wisdom and enlightenment and insight and even salvation from ourselves, who if we don't have Jesus is dead, from others and the physical things of this world. You just walk in a graveyard for very long and you'll realize that. I don't know if you like to do that. I do because I'm a little weird. But... (laughs) You walk in there long enough, and you notice that they, those are stories, told and untold, full of secrets and truths and potentials and opportunities and successes and failures. It's not a place where life ends. It's a place where there is no life, just the remnants of lives lived. And Jesus was buried. And like all of us, as we die, we will have a grave and maybe a tombstone, and you have to ask what is going to be on your tombstone. If we look at Jesus' hypothetical tombstone, what is written on it in this moment as he's dead? It can only be what his reputation is. So it can only be one of two things. It can only be that he was a good man, loved by many, had the potential to change the world, did remarkable things, or it's as the others who put him to death think, a heretic, a liar, a lunatic who blasphemed and committed treason. What is going to be written on your tombstone? Because it's going to be either one of those things, either negative or positive. But here's the hope. That doesn't have to be the end of the story. You see, his resurrection changes all of that. Erases all of that. Says, no, Jesus is God. Jesus is king of kings. He's the savior of the world. His resurrection says, no, he did change the world. He did change the lives of millions of people who have decided to put to death their old sinful selves and arise anew, relying on the power that was displayed in the resurrection. It solidifies for us true, genuine change. And it gives us, honest men and women of faith, a reason to move forward. Not because the claim is false or based on lies or an idle tale, but because it is true. And what many of these young men here at this time, stake their lives on, and many afterwards. And so, now what? Before we knew Jesus, we were dead. We were hopeless. Hopeless fishermen and laborers and tax collectors, office workers, political activists, students, teachers, all without direction, trying to find meaning in those things. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes into our life. He's healing us and saving us and teaching us and changing us and guiding us. You see, without God, all we can do is look at the people of the past, the graveyard. And if that's all that we can do and there is no God, then as Jesus says, it is finished, literally. And it's over. But that's not the case. With Jesus, when we put to death our old self, it's complete as Jesus designed it. Christ, in turn, calls us to put to death our old, past, sinful self. We need to stop looking for life and who we were, but instead in who we have become in Jesus. God does not want us to seek life among the dead, 
among who we were, continuing to fall back into that same pattern of sin and those old habits, we need to start living a new life, a new transformed life because of the redemption that we have found in the resurrection. And why? Why all of a sudden this change? Why such a drastic change even among the disciples, even more so when they, than when they first met Jesus? We had to realize that these people here, we'll look at in a second, are not perfect. They mess up. For example, Mary Magdalene, we'll look at that. In Luke 8, verses 1 through 2, she, when she meets Jesus, is possessed with seven demons. Now, turn over to John chapter 20 real quick. John chapter 20, we'll stay there for some time, looking at some of the transformation of these disciples. And look at her reaction when she sees Jesus. John chapter 20, verses 10 through 18. So the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb, weeping. As she wept, she began, she she bent down and, and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and one at the feet. And she said, and they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And Mary replied, They have taken my Lord away. I do not know where they have put him. Again, right? Longing for something. Perplexed. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Because she thought it was the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will take him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, and Jesus replied, Do not touch me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father. Go to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and informed the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what Jesus had said to her. When I picture this scenario, now I'm picturing the morning sun rising and just that sunlight beaming into that empty tomb and Jesus standing in front of that sunlight, we don't know. But the point is, when she recognizes Jesus, she's overjoyed. She runs to him, where instantly tears of sadness and grief turn to tears of joy. Tears of pure joy. And she proclaims what in verse 18? I have seen the Lord. We may not have seen Jesus the way that she's seen Jesus, but we can clearly see the effects of Jesus in our lives. Do we proclaim with the same joy, or do we do it begrudgingly because we have to, or do we hide away and do nothing? This is not the same Mary that was possessed by demons. This is a changed Mary who went from really despair to delight. This change isn't found in only Mary either. Keep going. Jeff read this this morning in John 20, verses 26 through 29. We'll read it again very quickly where we see Thomas' transformation. A man who refused to believe that Jesus rose from the dead unless he stuck his hands in his wounds. He's not going to believe. And in verse 26, we're told eight days later, his disciples were inside. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands and put out your hand 
and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Again, a very similar reaction, full of joy, proclaiming not just that he's seen the Lord, but proclaiming that Jesus is God. That's an amazing thing. And not just for him. The the desire when Jesus was resurrected was so everyone could proclaim the same thing. For everyone, it is my Lord and my God. Every time we meet Jesus or we see them meet Jesus, it is met with inexpressible joy. And so often, we're waiting for joy to enter into our life before we make a change. And that's not the case. No, we follow Jesus and Jesus changes us and then joy comes along for the ride as we move forward. Joy and happiness is not our salvation. Jesus is our Savior. And he brings us joy and happiness. And what we see in Thomas is doubt at first turned to conviction. And we keep going. Peter, as we know, he saw Jesus and experienced a transformation as well. But before that, we read in Mark 14, verse 31, that he emphatically told during the Passover that, I must die with you. I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. And then moments later, we'll keep going. And Jesus is arrested. And in that same chapter, he denies Jesus three times. It says he began to curse and swore an oath. I do not know this man, Jesus, you are talking about. Now, look at Peter's transformation. So John 21, just the next chapter, if you have your Bibles open. John 21, verses 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And that's when it hit. And Peter was grieved, it says. Right? Probably remembering his denial three times. And he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And the end of verse 19. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the resurrection. As I mentioned earlier, it's a story full of love and forgiveness. I want you to notice in these passages that they're moving forward. But they're moving forward with sadness and grief until Jesus shows up. And then they're moving forward with joy, pure, eternal joy. And when Peter denied knowing Jesus, that should cut off the relationship. Jesus might as well be dead to him. I don't know that man. I swore oaths and curses. I don't know him. That's not what we see from Jesus. We may not know a lot of people, but we don't treat them as if they're dead to us. 
And in this passage here, Jesus shows to Peter what's the opposite of denial and self-denial and a lack of existence and hatred and anger. And it's love, the love that comes from God. Jesus' resurrection teaches us to move forward and to move forward with God's forgiveness. You see, Peter was grieved here because of his actions earlier, because of his denial. And we don't see him begging Jesus for forgiveness, but Jesus knew what Peter needed, what he needed to move forward. And you'll notice Jesus didn't forget what Peter did. That's why he had to confess his love to him three times. When people talk about forgiveness, it's usually synonymous with forgetfulness. And that's not the case at all. We need to forgive. God calls us to forgive as God forgave. We need to forgive ourselves. We need to forgive others. Does that mean we forget what others have done and what we have done so that we can fall into the same trap over and over and over again? No, but we need God's forgiveness in order to move forward. And that last thing that Jesus said to Peter, look at verse 19. He said, follow me. Moving forward is following Jesus. God has forgiven us so that we can move forward. And we need to be able to forgive others, including ourselves. And so, like Peter and Thomas and Mary, they all move forward to God. So that they can live out the lives that the resurrection proved needed to be changed and did change. And Peter, we see him go from regret to forgiveness. And there's other honorable mentions as well. You have James, the brother of John. You have James, the uh, half-brother of Jesus and Paul, who went from persecutor to evangelist. All these people changed when they saw Jesus. They all changed because of the resurrection proved who Jesus was, who he said he was, and what he did, and his sacrifice on the cross. It validated that, made that real and true. And so look at your own life now. What do people say about you? What do you say about yourself? And all of those things are nice. But you can't live your life on that. What does God say about you? He says he loves you, forgives you. Are we willing to accept that forgiveness by being baptized? We'll get one last passage before we close, and it really sums up nicely what we've been talking about, Colossians 2, 11 through 14, where it says, by putting off the body of the flesh, there's that you know, don't look for the living among the dead. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith. Right? So we can move forward in the powerful workings of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and your flesh, God made alive together with him. There it is. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. If we have that record of debt, those trespasses, and you want them canceled and to move forward, not looking for the living among the dead, but looking to Jesus, do that. Be baptized this morning. If that is you this morning, then come forward now while we stand and we sing.